Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, The Crossroad, a study in the book of John. And let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Righteousness and Mercy. In June of 1983, Carla Faye Tucker and her boyfriend Daniel Garrett broke into a home in Houston, Texas. Both of them had been high on drugs for days, and they broke into the home to get some much-needed money. The couple who owned the home were at home at the time, and Tucker and Garrett killed both husband and wife with a hammer and a pickaxe. It was a brutal and senseless murder, and it outraged the people of the state of Texas. Both Tucker and Garrett were tried for the same crime. Both received the sentence of death. On February 3, 1998, about 14 and a half years after the crime, Carla Tucker was the first woman executed in the state of Texas since the American Civil War. But that's not all there was to the story. The interesting mix in the story is that while in prison, a Christian ministry team came to her cell block, and since she was bored, Carla joined the crowd to watch the gospel being enacted in a puppet show. She was taken by what she saw, and then she stole a Bible out of the chapel, not knowing that they were given out for free. And later on that same night, with her Bible in her hands, Carla Faye Tucker, the brutal murderer, surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. And sometime later, here's what she wrote about her conversion. She wrote, When I did this, the full overwhelming weight and reality of what I had done hit me. I began crying that night for the first time in many years, and to this day, tears are a part of my life. You know, Carla's conversion and her truly repentant life lit off a firestorm across the U.S. at that time. You know, some felt she should be pardoned. I mean, after all, was there not mercy before God? And others felt not. I mean, after all, pardoning people after conversion would make conversion a great way to get off. It would make a mockery of justice. So in the end, Carla was indeed executed, but her case leaves us with an important question. What's the relationship between justice or righteousness and mercy? How does one properly balance righteousness and mercy? Or let me bring it up to date. What do you do with church leaders who have committed adultery and have betrayed their vows to Christ? I mean, do you reinstate them into leadership? How do you balance these things, righteousness and mercy? So let's read our text, John 7, 53 to 8, 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. The people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now, before we go on, you're going to notice that most Bibles have a little note in the text that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Well, in fact, that's true. 
Well, then, should it be in the Bible? Here's why I think it should. Many Bible scholars believe that John 7, 53 to 8, 11 is a historically authentic account from the life of Jesus. It's also fairly clear that it's rightfully from John's own pen. That is, John wrote this account. And I feel tempted to give you all the reasons for that. However, some scholars feel that this account may have been moved. It's possible that this account, for some reason, was originally in another section in John. I mean, I don't know, maybe a page dropped out and was added again in a different place. But a sermon usually is not the best place to discuss what scholars call the science of textual criticism. You know, sermons are about applying the truth of God's Word to the life of believers. But if you do have questions about this note in your Bible, might I refer you to D.A. Carson's excellent notes in his commentary on John's Gospel. I, I think he answers most of the questions remarkably well. Now, for our purposes, I'm going to treat this for what it is, an authentic account from the life of Jesus that happened historically right here at the end of the Feast of Booths. Okay, the seventh day of the Feast of Booths has ended, and the next day, the eighth day, would have been the Sabbath. The population would stay in Jerusalem for one more day, and then everyone would go home. The enemies of Jesus have been completely frustrated. They'd attempted to murder him during these seven last days, but the crowd was divided about Jesus, and the temple police had sided with Jesus. It seemed from the perspective of the Pharisees that all was lost. Jesus would get away. They had wanted so much to arrest him, but their best efforts had failed. So early the next morning, as Jesus was going to the temple again, last time during the feast, he's met on the way by the scribes and the Pharisees, and they have with him a woman. It would appear that on the previous night, the last day of the feast, while everyone was in great spirits and everyone was celebrating, she had been caught in the very act of adultery. They caught her doing it. Now, here's a conundrum. It would appear that the Jewish religious leaders finally had Jesus cornered. He will not get out of this one. I mean, they couldn't murder him. They couldn't defeat him in debate. But now they have him in a trap. And here's why. The Old Testament law was very clear about these matters. Deuteronomy 22 verse 22 says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So the Old Testament had death penalty for adultery. A woman will be dragged out and publicly executed for adultery. It was horrible. Now, if Jesus says, go ahead and stone her, well, two things are going to happen. I mean, first of all, he's going to get in trouble with the Roman authorities. Now, the Romans took away the Jewish right to execute capital criminals. So, in fact, if Jesus would have said, yes, go ahead and stone her, well, he might have been arrested. So, who needs to have the temple police arrest Jesus when the Roman government is going to do a better job? Well, that sounds great. Now, secondly, and this is so important, if Jesus would have said, yeah, go ahead and stone her, he would have broken his hold over the common people. I mean, think about the people who follow Jesus. I mean, tax collectors, prostitutes, drunkards. He's very popular with sinners. But if Jesus would have condemned this woman to stoning, the common person, the crowd, the people of the land, would have deserted them. I mean, they all were only too aware of their own sins, and the Pharisees were looking for that. But if Jesus would have said, no, don't stone her well, then the Pharisees had him as well. For then they could have made their case that he was a lawbreaker. And this is what the enemies had said about Jesus the whole time. He's teaching people to ignore the law of God. And, and if he came from God, how could he be a lawbreaker at the same time? I mean, that's the test. 
And I can almost imagine the Pharisees are smiling now. They know they've got him. But it's not just a dilemma that Jesus faced. We still face that dilemma today. It's the stuff of our lives. What shall we do with people who have sinned? Shall it be justice or shall it be mercy? Every single faithful church has had to deal with this. Why? Well, because people sin. Sometimes those sins are serious. I know we're fond of saying, look, all sin is just sin, but consider. Some sins destroy families. Some sins destroy the unity between believers. Sometimes sin can threaten to erode the trust between people. Like, for instance, when a leader falls into sexual sin and rips the fellowship apart. Sometimes leaders betray a congregation. Some sins can bring a whole church down. So what should we do? Well, every time we talk about this, we see people divide into two groups. Some demand justice and some demand mercy. So what do we do? Shall we teach the holiness of God or shall we teach the grace of God? I mean, how do you balance that? So please understand that both of these perspectives by themselves, if you consider only one of them, are plagued with problems. When you're too harsh with sin, you become a self-righteous, judgmental person who knows no compassion. And in the end of the day, what are you going to do with your own sin? But when you're too soft on sin, you become a person who becomes comfortable with uncleanness. Well, what do you do? It seems no matter which way you turn, you're caught in a trap. Now, I know that these matters are not minor matters. There are those whose husband or wife has left for another partner. Or think about those kids who've watched mom or dad leave the home. And you've struggled your whole life between these two options. Shall it be righteousness or shall it be mercy? And you simply don't know where to turn. If you show mercy, the person will think it doesn't matter. But if you show righteousness, you're going to alienate everyone and life will become unlivable. Each one by itself seems like the wrong answer. This stuff can tear you apart. Let's see what we can learn from Jesus about this very thing. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked, or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then Back to the Bible Canada's Israel Experience has been designed just for you. Well, we're heading to Israel in 2021, and we'd like to invite you to join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada team for this amazing trip from April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experiencing the sights, sounds, history, and the culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. This is a life-changing trip that you won't want to miss, and, and you have plenty of time to prepare. So to learn more and register, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebibletours.ca. A great many people have tried to guess what Jesus actually wrote in the dust. You know, some say he wrote Jeremiah 17, verse 13. You know, it's a passage that says that all people who forsake the Lord will be written in the dust. That is, they will be forever forgotten and destroyed. Maybe. You know, others say he wrote, where's the guy? Others, you got the woman, where's the man? See, the fact is we just don't know what he wrote. But we do know that whatever it was, his writing in the dust and his statement about throwing the first stone, well, it was so forceful 
that it simply intimidated the crowd and everyone left. Well, there must have been something in that act that was so powerful that everyone gave up so easily. Now, I know that some people like to think that this passage teaches that, look, everyone's a sinner, so don't judge. But let me share with you that that couldn't have been the meaning of this text. I mean, first of all, the Old Testament law was very clear that people had to judge people. In fact, if sinful human beings can't judge other sinful human beings, well, then you couldn't have a legal system today. In that case, thieves, murderers, rapists, I mean, all of them could simply say, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. See, that kind of interpretation about Jesus doesn't make any sense. You know, and secondly, the rest of the New Testament does teach that the church must judge between people in the church. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12 says exactly that. Paul says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? You know, the context has to do with judging people involved with sexual immorality that is inside the church. See, when Jesus told us not to judge others, he was speaking very specifically about something. He's speaking about judging people's inner motivation. We're not to judge someone's motivation, but we can judge their actions. In other words, I must not say that person is serving God out of a desire for recognition. I mean, who are you to say that? How dare you judge someone? But you can say, if you lie or commit adultery or steal, it's wrong. Jesus taught that we can judge the actions of others. So what did Jesus do when he was writing in the sand and then speaking to the Pharisees that so disarmed them? Well, first of all, I think it's helpful if we do a little more detailed study about what the law actually said. Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. In other words, the death penalty in all cases in the Old Testament had to be a rare event. You couldn't put someone to death based on circumstantial evidence. You had to have two independent witnesses who both saw the crime happen. You know, in Christ's day, the rabbis had taught extensively on exactly that. It was considered evil to see a person about to commit a crime and then not stop them. Well then, in that case, it would be almost impossible to convict someone to death for adultery because you needed two witnesses and then you'd have to ask them, why did no one stop this? See, on top of that, the rabbis demanded that the witnesses to adultery must have been able to see the actual movements of the couple. <laughs> well, that's interesting. See, third, any accusation would have to go to an official court. Given that the events of John 8 had just happened, a court case hadn't occurred. And fourth, the two witnesses had to be independently interviewed, and their testimony had to be identical in every respect. And finally, both the man and the woman, in this case, had to be equally charged. Now, here's the woman. Where's the man? Everything in this case smells of corruption. And under these conditions, you should be getting a picture. Obtaining evidence for adultery was almost impossible in the time of Jesus. And the reason for that is because, I mean, listen carefully, the law wanted to show you how serious adultery was, but the law was not interested in stoning. And we know that because at the time of Jesus, there was probably no case of actual stoning for adultery in Jesus' day. And since that's the case, it's completely clear that this situation, the woman brought before Jesus, was a clear setup. 
It seems entirely likely that the man who committed adultery with her was in on this. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, oh, I wish you could see how black their hearts actually were. These men were using this woman as a human throwaway just so they could trap Jesus. They weren't interested in her or in the outcome of her life. They were interested in trapping Jesus. And Jesus saw right through that. I believe he wrote out his conclusions in the sand. I mean, he might have written out exactly how it was possible that this woman was presented and would have shown how each man in that group was actually culpable in the setup. And then he stood up and said, okay, you want to stone her? Then the person who is without guilt, that is the person who's not culpable in this setup, you go ahead and throw the first stone. And then he bent down and wrote again. See, the group was stunned. He had figured them out. He knew exactly what was going on. And then they all walked away. So we're talking about righteousness and mercy. See, we've asked what to do with sin, sin among the people of God. Should we demand justice or should we look for mercy? But this story introduces a different aspect to it. It introduces the question of motive that we might have in wanting to deal with sin. I hope you see that. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were not interested in righteousness, not at all. They were interested in condemning Jesus. And so the application to this is quite clear. When we talk about the sins of others, what's our motive in doing so? Is your motive, for instance, to minimize your own sin? I mean, the way the Pharisees constantly did. Or is your motive to further your own cause to get what you want? See, I'm amazed at how many people condemn others, and then in so doing, they're not interested in God's righteousness. They have other motives. They want to fire someone to get their job, or they want someone removed so that they won't be bothersome. They defeat a certain faction in the church to get their own way and their own power, that kind of thing. See, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus deals with how believers should react when someone sins against them. And my experience in the church is that his instructions found in Matthew 18 are almost always thoroughly ignored. Rather than committing to what he said and taught us, we prefer slander and half-truths and impure motivation, even condemnation. And if we should have time in Matthew 18, we would see that the purpose of confronting sins is not to express outrage. Instead, it is to provide an opportunity for the sinning person to repent and to be restored. And none of that was done with this woman. And Jesus saw through their deceit. And if all we want to do is condemn the guilty, Jesus has a word for us. His word is to expose the hypocrisy and the darkness in our own heart. So what do we learn from this encounter? I think it's this. In Jesus, we have a remarkable intersection, an intersection of both righteousness and mercy. I wonder what that moment must have been like for this woman. She's been set up by a wicked man. Perhaps she's been involved in adultery in the past. I imagine she had been. And this was just another one of her affairs. And perhaps that's why she was so easily used. She was an easy. They knew who to get to. But in an instant, men have run into her room accusing her of adultery and demanding the death penalty. And she's ashamed, and she's frightened, and she's confused, and what has just happened? And in the morning, they drag her out in front of the popular teacher, Jesus. And she can see that her life is in his hands. And Jesus confronts her accuser so skillfully, he literally shames and scandalizes them so badly they retreat. 
and she with her horrible sins is left standing all alone. She's standing in the middle of the street, eye to eye with the king of righteousness and the king of mercy. What must she have seen when she looked into his eyes? I wonder. Notice his first question, where are your accusers? Well, he knows they're gone, but he wants to let those words sink in. He has dispelled the mob. It was because of him that her business is not with the hypocrisy of those men. Her business is now with him and him alone. Now here's the second question. Has no one condemned you? And then neither do I. And he doesn't mean adultery doesn't matter. I mean, we know it matters because in the next breath, he says what she did was a sin. Rather, he will not advocate for her condemnation, that is, for the death penalty. He doesn't want her undoing. He wants her restoration. And that's where the lesson is found. If you come to Jesus, he does not want your condemnation. He wants to heal you. He wants to restore you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to make you whole. That's the difference between Jesus and us. We want sin exposed to condemn people. He wants sin exposed to heal people. That's the good news to sinners. And if that's you, take heart. You don't have to hide your sins before him. But that's bad news if you're a Pharisee. Because if you are one who's condemned and pushed people out of the fellowship and there are bodies all around you, would you see Jesus writing in the sand, he is exposing your sin. Now then, we meet Jesus. In him, righteousness and mercy come together. And in him, all sinners are invited to come. Confess your sin and be healed. Then go and sin no more. John, I really appreciate your message because it's a great reminder. You know, sometimes we go into Scripture and we make assumptions as we read through quickly and say, well, those without sin cast the first stone. Well, obviously they had sin, so, but there's more to it. There's something deeper, and we need to realize in our study of the Word that we need to take the time to see what is the Scripture really saying. Yeah, I think curiosity is a good thing, Ben, you know, because curiosity invites us into a far deeper engagement when with Scripture than, you know, the you know, the easy answer, and then we just move on. So, you know, yeah, a little bit of study yields some wonderful results, especially in this passage. You know, as, as we've seen, the point of this passage is not to say, you know, everyone has sinned, so you have no right to judge sin. That, that's not the issue. The, the real issue is, look, here are people who are willing to slander someone and use them as a throwaway to get what they want. Do we see ourselves in that? So there's some really important questions to be asked. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Heidi wrote in to say, I discovered your program last summer, and since then, well, I've learned so much from the expository teaching of the Bible. Well, thanks, Heidi. You know, it's hearing the stories of friends like you that assures us that the Bible teaching program is making a difference. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month, or consider becoming a monthly partner. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program is heard in your community and right across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become a monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.